from the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck, the minister at the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find more information about Religion for Life at religionforlife.com. Question for the day, what color was Jesus? Was Jesus a white guy? Well, if you look at images in movies and in paintings, he seems to be as uh, white as you can be. Blue eyes, brown hair. Where did that come from? Why is Christ white in America? My guest is Professor Edward Bloom. He is Associate Professor of History at San Diego State University. He's a historian of race and religion and uh, in the United States. Uh, he's the author with Paul Harvey of The Color of Christ, The Son of God, and The Saga of Race in America. Uh, also, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, American prophet, and Reforging the White Republic, Race, Religion, and American Nationalism. He's going to be at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga on Thursday, September 19th at 530. His lecture on race and religion will be part of the Leroy Martin Distinguished Lecture Series. On Friday, September 20th, he'll be at Westminster Presbyterian in Knoxville. What Color is Your Jesus is the title of that lecture. And then Saturday, September 21st at 10 in the morning, the Presbytery of East Tennessee will host him at Mercy Junction in Chattanooga. More details regarding these events can be found at religionforlife.com. And he is with me via Skype from uh, San Diego. Welcome, Dr. Bloom, to Religion for Life. Hey, thanks so much. It's great to be on here with you. Why uh, this book, uh, The Color of Christ? How did you come to write it, and why is it important? You know, two main reasons for why I came to it. One was very, very personal, and that is um, I started to have children. And I, I was thinking about how will my kids learn faith? How will they learn religion um, before they can read the Bible, before they can think theologically for themselves? And I was looking around and I'm like, huh, well, when we're at church, here I am holding my baby boy, singing songs, and, you know, there are some images around. So my baby might be seen and feeling a kind of sacred moment that that gets attached to what a person looks like, so like a portrait or you know or an image of Jesus. Um, so that was the first personal kind of reason. The second professional reason was um, I have been very very interested as a historian about the ways in which religious and racial concepts have been linked throughout American history. How, basically, why do we have churches that are segregated? Um, how have notions about, you know, being white or black or, or something like that, how have they been translated up to who gets into heaven or what we look like in heaven? And so Jesus became a kind of ideal subject to think about the intersections of human bodies and the sacred, because here we have, you know, the incarnation. And so how have Americans who think about bodies a lot throughout history, what have they thought about the body of Jesus when they're, you know, selling a slave or when they're um, freeing slaves or taking Native American lands or things like that. Um, and so those, the personal interest and the professional interest kind of collided in um, the shape, the face of Jesus throughout American history. 
you know, thinking about the personal image. I remember when I was in seminary and uh, praying with my kids, and my my son was very young at the time, and I prayed to uh, uh, God as mother, and he bolted right up and said, well, God isn't a mother, God's a man. And, um, you know, I know he didn't read this anywhere, he just probably got it from images, uh, the, perhaps the same image I had of Jesus with his uh, wavy hair and blue eyes, uh, the image created by Warner Solomon that you uh, talk about in your book. Yeah, see, we get these messages long, long, long before other cognitive development, you know, whether it's praying, you know, our Father who art in heaven, and we just mm-hmm. hear Father over and over and over again, right, that we think of God as man, or we just see this image, and you know, even if we catch it in a in a um, a church uh, a, a a baby's Bible, you know, we have those, and it's like Jesus, Pete's, you know, can Jesus ever be other than white? Like it's very very rare, but yeah, but but children get these emotional psychological connections deeply into their into their bodies um, from a whole variety of that kind of stimuli. Well, your book, of course, is, is traces the history of, of the image of Jesus uh, in our country. But Jesus wasn't always white in America, was he? No, not at all. That's the both peculiar and fascinating element that in colonial America, when the first European settled what would become the United States, they by and large did not have images of Jesus, the Puritans didn't have them at all. They were radical iconoclasts who said, you know what, um, Catholic imagery, that's idolatry, that's a violation of the second commandment. And so they destroyed images and um, of Jesus. And, so, and then when Americans first started having depictions of Jesus, um, they largely focused on the blood and and there were these just really graphic bloody Jesuses. I mean things that would even make um passion of the huh. Christ almost look tame. Um and they'd actually some of these images would show people drinking from the blood of Jesus as it came out of his his side. Um one woman um prayed that um and had a vision of Jesus's blood coming out of her breast milk to heal her baby. And so the emphasis there wasn't on Jesus as being white or any race. It was about his blood just overwhelming everything. Well, what was the social situation at that time that would make that image popular? Well, the bloody part, if we go back to this kind of colonial context, what we have is we have renegade Europeans who um, basically have no place in Britain or in Europe, you know, whether they're religious dissenters or whether they're criminals and, and paupers, they have to get out and mm-hmm. they come to a, they come to a place where they don't know the farmlands. They don't know what life is like and they die. They die in droves. And then we have native Americans who are there who um, have in many ways a real connection to a hunting uh, religious culture in which the blood of animals is often understood to be sacred and you'd often have you know if you even if you kill a deer then eat it you kind of have a sacred moment where you thank the deer um, for giving its life blood for your for your group and then you have west africans who've come as slaves and they've experienced bloody trauma 
along the Middle Passage. You put all these people together, speaking different languages, having different faiths, but one thing they all know about is bloody death. And so blood becomes kind of a symbol of, on one hand, death, but also possibility of redemption. And look, the God-man bled just as we bleed. And that, that really took on powerful meaning for America, for a whole variety of Americans in, in the colonial time. So when did uh, Jesus then become uh, white in the United States? When did people start painting uh, images of him as, as white? Largely and popularly in the early 19th century, so a couple decades after the American Revolution. And pretty much what you have is a new United States, which is growing. It's growing rapidly in population, and it's growing in geography. Right, it's moving from the mm -hmm. East Coast. And what happens is, since it's this new Republican experiment, um, there's this fear among everyday people, everyday Americans, that, oh, no, what if our children stop being virtuous citizens like our, like our parents were? Like, what if we don't have George Washington's, we have Benedict Arnold's? And so a bunch of Protestant Christians say, you know what, we, need to, we really need to make sure our children become good evangelicals. We need to convert them. And, and what they turn to is they say, okay, children can't read the Bible, but they like images. And so a whole bunch of groups start mass producing imagery for children. And that's when they first start using white Jesus imagery um, to try to Christianize the American populace. So was the use then of this, of, uh, of the whitening of Jesus conscious? I mean, was there a concerted effort to paint portraits of Jesus as, as, as white with blue eyes, or is this really an unconscious response to um, just uh, painting, in a sense, themselves? Um, there's a, it's very much, on one hand, unconscious in that these groups, when they talk about why they're presenting Jesus, they're, they're very clear that their fear, their fears are not slavery or, you know, racial fears, like things with Native Americans. Their fears are Catholicism. These Protestants are fearful that their children might gravitate toward Catholicism or infidelism, okay, or, or agnosticism. They don't want their children to become non-believers. Mm -hmm. There is, so that's the kind of main context as they see it. The subtext is a massive growth in slavery in America and a very aggressive, concerted taking of Native American lands. This is the same time period as like the Trail of Tears. Now, factor all that together with the emergence of this, this fake letter called the Publius Lentulus letter, yeah. which, which, was actually was a forgery from the Middle Ages, but it basically had this little narrative of a Roman consulate writing like, oh, I saw this Jesus figure, and then it gives about a two-paragraph description of what he looked like, what his eyes looked like, what his skin looked like, his hair was parted in the middle. Have you ever noticed images of Jesus often have his hair parted in the middle for some strange reason? Mm -hmm. It talks about his beard, how long it was. Well, in colonial America, everybody knew that this was a fake, that the Publius Lentulus letter was totally fraudulent. But it comes into vogue um, as people are getting more um, 
written material throughout America in the early 19th century. So a, a, a publishing house has this letter. They have their fears that their children might become infidels. And in the background, they're hearing, you know, there's all these debates about slavery and about Native American land. And so it's kind of the perfect storm to make Jesus white, but not not be conscious about it. So that's where we get this image of the long-haired Jesus and the beard. Uh, is really from this this fake letter that I hadn't even heard about until I read your book. Yeah, it's much more, at least American writers and artists talk much more about that than they talk about being influenced by, like, European artwork. So uh, when we move into, then, uh, the Civil War, Jesus is used as a tool uh, uh, to promote both slavery and also liberation. Yeah, so when we get to, you know, Americans debating, you know, the rightness of slavery, they do, they do what they do with the whole Bible and with all of kind of society. The pro-slavery forces try to make Jesus a pro-slavery Christ, and the anti-slavery forces try to make Jesus an anti-slavery Christ. But here's the trick about that debate. Usually we think of the pro-slavery people, most often Southerners, as the Bible literalists, who are interested in reading the Bible as um, infallible and literally, and they don't want to take into con- they don't want to take context into um, the, de- the debate. But what happens is those pro-slavery people, because Jesus never talks about slavery, he never says anything about it. They state they start making arguments about context. They say, oh, but Jesus lived in a context, a historical moment where there was slavery. So the fact that he didn't talk about slavery means that it's okay. Hmm. All of a sudden, that doesn't sound like what a Bible literalist would say. A Bible literalist would say if it's what it says is what it says, and we need to focus on that. The anti-slavery folks do more of the kind of literalist, they say, What's the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have done unto you. Are you literally following that when you sell a family, when you separate a family through sales? If you have sex with a woman who's not your wife, who's your slave, is that doing unto others as you would have done unto you? And we usually think of the anti-slavery forces as the people who are more kind of liberal, more kind of, you know, just use use the Bible um, whatever way they kind of want. When it comes to Jesus, the script is flipped, and um, in many ways, the pro the 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 anti-slavery forces really win the debate over which side would Jesus be on the the pro-slavery side or the anti-slavery side. And by the Civil War, it's clear that Jesus in American culture is really on the side of of the anti-slavery movement. But then after the war that you write in, in, in your book that, um, that Jesus kind of becomes the, the crucified Christ representing the crucified South. Yeah, so this is where the South losing the war and losing its slaves, all of a sudden they become the oppressed. They become the marginalized. They become the defeated. And so the Confederate lost cause uh, aligns itself with Jesus um, so much so that we get the emergence of the Ku Klux Klan, who 
claim to be, hey, look, we're just followers of Jesus. And hey, we even wear robes, just like Jesus wore a robe. <laughs> and so the South, kind of the white South, effectively claims Jesus through its defeat, not through its slave ownership. My guest, if you're just joining us on Religion for Life, is Professor Edward Blum. He teaches uh, history at San Diego State University, and he is the author, along with Paul Harvey, of The Color of Christ, uh, The Son of God, and The Saga of Race in America. Now, voices were against the uh, depictions of the white Christ even back in in the 19th century. They just, uh, as, as I gather from your book, they just didn't quite have the social power to create uh, uh, images that weren't white. But yes. So the first explicit, the first time any American comes out and says, no, 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 Jesus was not white. He was colored. was actually a Native American Methodist in the early 1830s. And there's two reasons for why this has been forgotten. Um, one is the publishing world back then wasn't like today. It wasn't like today where you and I could you know, write something for Huffington Post and then it could get picked up. And, and if people were interested, it could bebop all over the place and folks could know about it. Back then, if you don't get traction right away, if you don't get people reading what you're writing, then it can just, it can just die um, from the public um, you know, domain. And the other reason this was forgotten, this Native American Methodist writing, is that throughout the 20th century, most Americans, when they came to think about race, they focused explicitly on white, black. And so when we get the civil rights movement and we get people writing about, yeah, religious resistance to racism throughout American history, they tell it as an African-American story. And those folks didn't read a lot of you know, work from Native Americans or from Asian Americans in the 19th century or from others. And so there's this long history of Native Americans, of Asian Americans challenging explicitly this white Jesus, um, but, it, but it kind of got lost um, in the shuffle. Tell us a little bit about the effects of a white Jesus on people personally. You talked a little bit about, about your own, uh, uh, your children and, and, and wanting that, but what are the effects uh, psychologically as well as socially on, on the image of Jesus being white? Yeah. Often the effects are um, a lot deeper. They're not right on the surface, but they're things like empathy and care. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sociological data and, and um, brain science data that shows um, that people care about, they empathize with emotionally, people that they, they see that are considered valuable by the media or by culture. And so when a white child is abducted, all of a sudden the media cares, all of a sudden my emotions run versus when a, a child of color is abducted, it doesn't get much play. And it doesn't, um, when seeing someone get hurt, whether it's in a movie or on the street, if that person, society says that person is valuable, um, then we tend to feel more pain for them. We're more interested in helping them. So how does that connect to Jesus? Well, if Jesus is God made man in the flesh, that means this flesh is valuable. 
And so we see this white Jesus. It's just another main way in which certain flesh is seen as valuable. And so when, for instance, September 11th, 2001 happens and, you know, 3,000-ish largely white Americans die, emotions pour out. At the very same historical moment, thousands upon thousands to millions, perhaps, of Africans are dying of HIV. And there's a kind of cognitive, oh, that's sad, but not an emotive, oh, how, how awful is this? And so the, the link between Jesus being white and then those other empathies and actions, it's not direct. It's not like someone sitting there saying, oh, well, Jesus is white, so I don't really care if this African-American gentleman is getting hit with a club. Um, it's, it's more indirect, but it's deeply, in, in, deeply psychologically um, embedded. Um, such that, and it goes back to that, who does society say and present is valuable and then how we value them. And that image of Jesus plays a role in who we say is most valuable. And media and technology have a role in this too. I think of Hollywood and all of the movies uh, about Jesus and, and most of them uh, uh, picture a, a, a white Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's where the media comes in, in that it's not even just about oh, hey, my church doesn't have a white Jesus, or in my house, we didn't have those books. All I have to do is turn on TV, you know, and we mm-hmm. can watch um, presentations of valuable bodies. In, in many ways, who is valuable, and even the image of Jesus has been taken out of the hands of Christians and out of the hands of everyday people, and it's in the cinema. It's in the television. It's on news reports. And so for what, what, what uh, we end up writing about is a – and the reason the color of Christ was really written was we need to consciously unlearn all of these connections. And this is the way we do it. We read a history, what, you know, like, wow, if the white Jesus has a history, it means it's not always been that way. And we can imagine a life without worshiping him that way. Um, so this conscious unlearning of all these trappings is what, what needs to what needs to happen? You know, I don't know if you can comment on this, but I remember seeing a photo of a billboard in Florida that had Christ on the cross, and this Jesus is is, is buff. He's an Arnold Schwarzenegger Jesus. He's he's a tough white Jesus, and his huge arm is breaking uh, one of the cross beams. And the caption reads, "You drew first blood, but I'll be back." And I'm kind of wondering what what is that about? That that's also taps into this. Uh, mythology of the icon of Jesus in America. Yeah, I've seen t-shirts that say things like Jesus didn't tap, you know, like tap out to, uh, you know, to end a fight. Um, The Uh connection of Jesus to this very muscular um, fighting culture, that kind of connects to the rise of mixed martial arts, um, you know, MMA, and, you know, you can watch ESPN and see this new type of, I mean, it's not a new type of fighting, but what's new about it is it's popular mass appeal. What we found in writing the book was that throughout the 20th century, Jesus became increasingly attached to American norms of sex appeal. Hmm. So for instance, he became much tanner over the 20th century. He was very fair in the early 20th century and then very tan uh, after the 1960s. He became younger and then he became fitter. 
So Jesus, in the Passion of the Christ, um, Jim Caviezel's character, when he's, um, before he's getting crucified, he's ripped. I mean, he's not big, but he's, he's really muscular in tone. And now we're getting this, you know, especially you go to the gym and you see these guys who are just really, really fit and really big. And so this Jesus as a sexy kind of Lion of Judah, that's emerging as well as Americans are kind of, you know, getting fixated on that kind of creatined up male, male body. My guest is uh, Edward Bloom. He's the author, along with Paul Harvey, of The Color of Christ, The Son of God, and The Saga of Race in America, a fascinating book. I, I just have one more question for you as we're getting close uh, to our time. But what do you see in America uh, as the future of The Color of Christ? Are, are we becoming, are we able to move beyond it, or will that remain with us? Yeah, I think there's two things happening, um, and historians are typically terrible prophets. Mm-hmm. Um, but I noticed two things. One is a browning of Jesus; that there is a movement to to discuss Jesus as brown. This came up during the Occupy movement, and because brown, it's not black, so it's not connected to just you know liberation, you know civil rights, liberation theology, black politics. It's brown is kind of like who's brown. That's really complicated. Um, anyone can kind of claim brown. The other trajectory is just a real conscious. We're just not going to have images of Jesus, or or we're going to have a multitude of images of Jesus. So like mega churches, mega churches never have depictions of Jesus because they don't want to be offensive um, to any any mm. participant who might come. And you know, marriage rates. Um, interracial sexuality, those things are changing the face of America. And so, you know, what is an interracial family and its children? What kind of image of Jesus will it have? We know historically, this is our children are the first generation of children to not think negatively of interracial marriage. 50 years from now, we might have a lot of just, um, we might be an interracial physical nation. And so at that point, that brown Jesus or the non-Jesus really may overtake white Jesus. And white Jesus might just be a kind of like that, you know, that grandma who said, who made weird racial comments at Thanksgiving, a kind of thing of the past that we all kind of endure, but don't give any credence to. Edward Bloom has been my guest on Religion for Life. He, along with Paul Harvey, is the author of The Color of Christ, The Son of God, and The Saga of Race in America. A fantastic discussion. Uh, Dr. Bloom, thank you for being with me today on Religion for Life, and thank you for your work. Oh, this is terrific. Thanks. Look forward to seeing you. And you have a chance to catch Edward Bloom at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, Thursday, September 19th, uh, Friday, September 20th at Westminster Presbyterian in Knoxville, and again, Saturday, September 21st in Chattanooga at Mercy Junction, talking about the color of Christ, race, and religion in America. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Shuck, minister at the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find more information about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts and information about upcoming shows at religionforlife.com, religionforlife.com. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHCFM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.